living on the streets, living without housing in this country is a living hell. It is trauma at every turn. You are constantly in survival mode. You're constantly thinking about the very basic things of human life. You're thinking about where am I going to sleep tonight? Am I going to be safe from the elements, from people that could hurt me? Where will I get food? Um, where will where will I shower? What will I do with my belongings? Welcome to Being Church in the Time of COVID, a podcast from Princeton Theological Seminary that engages the experiences and insights of pastors, theologians, and rising ministry leaders during the pandemics of 2020. I'm Sushama Austin Connor, your host. I'm Abigail Visco Russert, co-host and co-producer. And I'm Garrett Mostowski, your producer. This is one of our bonus episodes where we share the full interview we conducted with Chaplain Lindsey Krinks, who is the co-founder and co-director of Open Table Nashville. Open Table Nashville is a nonprofit interfaith community that disrupts cycles of poverty, journeys with the marginalized, and provides education about issues of homelessness. Lindsay shares insights from the front lines of ministry alongside a vulnerable population as Nashville navigates the onset of COVID-19, the aftermath of a tornado, and an ongoing movement for racial justice. This interview was first featured in our episode entitled Trauma and Friendship, which also features the insights of Professor John Swinton and rising ministry leader Tyler Sitt. We hope you enjoy this full-length interview with Lindsay Krinks. So my name is Lindsay Krinks. I live in Nashville, Tennessee, and I'm a street chaplain and a co-founder of a homeless outreach nonprofit here called Open Table Nashville. And I'd love for you to also share with us the mission of Open Table. Yeah, our mission is to disrupt cycles of poverty, journey with the marginalized, and provide education about issues of homelessness. How was Open Table impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic. I mean, you and I had a little conversation and I got to hear a bit of, of the story of what's been happening and how it's disrupted your ministry and your work. But I'd love to hear how both the people you serve um, have been impacted and then also how it's impacted you personally as a leader. Open Table Nashville is a homeless outreach nonprofit. And that means instead of people coming into us to receive services, we go out to where people are and meet them where they are. That could look like an encampment. It could look like the underside of a bridge. It could look like an alley or a bench at a public park. Um, We are a boots on the ground kind of organization and we are out where our people are. Um, When it's hot, it's hot. When it's cold, it's cold. And we, um, we really try to be present and it be a consistent presence to people experiencing homelessness in Nashville you know, COVID-19 hit, it came, our shutdown orders came a couple weeks after um, a very destructive tornado that ripped through our city. So when COVID-19 hit, we were already doing crisis response and emergency response on the ground. And we were already exhausted. We were already um, working to not only help our people that lost their campsites and their tents and their tarps, Um, but also to try to stem the tide of more people becoming homeless from, um, you know, impoverished neighborhoods that were hit really hard. So when COVID-19 hit, there was a lot of uncertainty. There was a huge lack of leadership here locally, and people were scrambling without 
the communication they needed and things like that. You know, our, our friends on the streets rely on libraries and community centers and food pantries and meal providers. And within a couple weeks, within the first two weeks, all of those things had shut down. They had closed their doors, leaving our friends um, without the, the basic safety nets that they would access on a day-to-day basis. Um, so we really started mobilizing with other outreach groups and saying, you know, right now we've got to focus on the basic human needs. That means we've got to pause some of the long-term work we're doing and figure out how we're going to get people food because the meal providers are gone. We've got to figure out how to get people basic restrooms and sanitation um, and the ability to wash and sanitize their hands. And um, we've also got to look at uh, our shelters here. Our shelters um, started limiting the number of people that could stay there um, because they wanted to be able to properly distance, right? So that caused the number of people in encampments to skyrocket. Um, And we've really had to work really hard on coordinated efforts um, with other outreach groups to make sure the needs of our people don't fall through the cracks. It's taken a pretty big toll on, on us. It's been incredibly consuming and it's been really difficult for our people. Who did you work with? Are there other organizations or community groups um, to try and meet some of those needs? some of the basic human needs that you're talking about? So one of the first things we did is um, I started getting on coordinated calls with other outreach leaders in Nashville. And um, that ranges from, you know, groups like Salvation Army that are private groups to groups like the Metro Homeless Impact Division. That's more of a city-based group. And we started talking about the needs and saying, what are we going to do to put what are we going to put in place to meet these needs? Our people will start like they, there is not food right now. And one of the really cool things that happened is um, we were able to partner with um, uh, Glencliff United Methodist Church here, which is actually where our offices at Open Table Nashville are based. And Glencliff United Methodist Church opened up their fellowship hall for us to use as a, a kind of um, ground zero for a makeshift food box program where we would get as many donated items as we could and start assembling food boxes to take out to the campsites and to take out to some of our people that were in housing um, but now had no meal programs to go to. Um, Folks with disabilities, folks in extreme poverty, folks in food deserts. And we we opened that pretty quickly. We got that up and running within a, a week and a half or so. And that's still running, and it's serving over 500 meals a week. We also partnered with another food group um, that's been giving us a lot of hot meals, which has been really nice for a lot of the encampments. We also saw the need to advocate um, with the city for the basic needs at these larger campsites. You know, our camps in Nashville, they range from having one or two people to 70 to 80 and sometimes upward toward 100 people. And we knew that we needed porta potties and hand sanitizing stations and trash pickup there, um, and that we needed to to really, really advocate that the city wouldn't close those camps when there was nowhere else to go. So we started moving on that, and we're successful in all of those um, areas. 
because of the partnerships that we've cultivated and because of the power that we've cultivated, the advocacy power we've cultivated over the years um, within our city. I'm curious about the roadblocks along the way. Um, when you say people may be shutting down some of the encampments, what are what are sort of the threats to this process of helping um, people with their basic needs um, in the wake of a tornado and and this pandemic? So it's really wild. And um, before the tornado and pandemic, the city was looking at shutting down three to four of the largest camps in our city. And we were already starting to talk to attorneys about legal support. Um, and then the tornado hit and then the pandemic hit. And what's really interesting is all of a sudden people realize in the city, people realize that people are a lot safer in campsites than they even are at the more crowded shelters um, because they can distance more. If they had the basic needs met, they could actually support each other and stay safer. Um, so there was really this like paradigm shift. We'd been fighting for people's right to exist in Nashville for 10 years, as long as we've existed. Um, and all of a sudden there's this paradigm shift of the city saying, oh, we, we're starting to get it now. Like these, there's not affordable housing here. Nashville's in a huge affordable housing crisis. Um, and because of that, there's more people out. So we, we did have a leg up because of the education organizing we've been doing on those issues in the past. Um, and we, as in past um, campsite shutdowns, we would have been one of the groups that said, if you arrest them, you're arresting us. Mm. You know, this is, it's not okay. They have the right to exist. There's no other options. So if they go down, we are too. And you don't want those headlines in the city. Um, so we, that's the kind of accompaniment work that we feel is so central to who we are and our work with our friends. If you could take us maybe a day in the life of your work in ministry, um, the people you serve, uh, like anonymous names, but like, who are they? Who are the people mm -hmm. that keep you going that are kind of stirring your soul in this work? I can hear it. Um, and so I'm, we are equally as interested in like how you personally have been affected by COVID and by this in your leadership and ministry. I'll start by saying that, you know, one of the areas hardest hit by the tornadoes in Nashville was a historically um, Black, economically disenfranchised neighborhood um, of North Nashville. And my husband and I were living there and the tornado hit our home directly and all of our neighbors and just literally its path went straight through our house. So on March 3rd, um, my husband and I, along with most of our neighbors um, and our, our friends lost our home and our cars. It was so, so surreal to, to come out of your house that's barely standing and to see power lines down and to see live wires all across the ground and to hear the sirens and to see your neighbor's houses falling in and to help pull them out of the wreckage. Um, and then to start hearing reports of one of the larger encampments that was um, just directly hit and kind of passed over. It was under a bridge and to have friends start calling you and saying, Hey, have you seen so-and-so? I heard he was under Jefferson street bridge. Was he hit? Is he okay? We're going right now. Can you meet us? And all the roads are shut down. Um, I have spent, spent my life, the, the last more than a decade 
um, working with people, my friends who are experiencing homelessness. And I've been displaced before through gentrification, but I've never experienced being without a home. And, you know, when your home is taken away from you, it's so disruptive in your life. You're plunged into survival mode. We had community. We had support. We had resources. But so many of our friends don't have those safety nets. But even with the safety nets, it's gutting. It's utterly like it it just flips you upside down and turns your world inside out. Um, So we were, you know, moving every uh, we moved like eight times in two or four times four or five times in two weeks, um, just staying with people here and there and there until we figured something out. So um, personally, that was really hard. And, and then to add to, the, add to the trauma of losing our home, um, I'm now eight months pregnant. So I've also been, <laughs> I've also been <laughs> oh my carrying life and pregnant <laughs> during the pandemic and during um, all of this upheaval, um, whether that's the tornado upheaval or all the racial justice um, upheaval we're seeing right now. It's such an important moment. So it is, it's personally been a really, um, really intense season, I would say, but also a really um, powerful one um, that reminds me that, you know, even in the midst of so much destruction and uncertainty, there is still there are still so many possibilities opening up around us for a radically different future. And there's still so much life inside of us and around us. And we have to keep remembering that it's not just the destruction, but it's the life that we're holding as well. Um, and that, that keeps me going. So I'm wondering um, if you could talk more about, so being displaced and, you know, living a life for several months where you're moving from place to place, how that connected you to people that you're serving and in, in what, what even more additional ways that it connected you. And I I should add, and I should have said this at the beginning, Lindsay, I went to Fisk university. (gasps) I know. I don't know why I didn't say that immediately. I talk about about Fisk in Nashville, like on a regular basis. We love Fisk. Sorry sorry for my sidebar. I love Nashville. (laughs) And I don't know why I didn't say that to you at the beginning. Mm. So I adore Nashville. Um, my whole family went there. My brother went to Meharry. So I have family still there. So mm. anyway, that's a sidebar for later. But um, again, we have lots to do over wine. But but how that displacement connected you and made you sort of realize what people are going through maybe that you didn't realize uh, before. I, I've been doing this work for so long, and I have a, a family history of homelessness um, with my uncles and with my cousins and um, and other family members. Um, and I didn't know if it was possible to have any more empathy for our friends that are on the streets. But losing losing our home um, really really made me realize how much trauma there is. You know, living on the streets, living without housing in this country is a living hell. It is trauma at every turn. You are constantly in survival mode. You're constantly thinking about the very basic things of human life. You're thinking about, where am I going to sleep tonight? Am I going to be safe? 
from the elements, from people that could hurt me? Where will I get food? Um, where will where will I shower? What will I do with my belongings? Um, you're constantly in survival mode, and that does so much destruction to the to the human spirit. Um, it forces you to live in subhuman conditions um, without having your basic needs met. And you know what was interesting the the day after the tornado, the morning after. We had a lot of friends reach out and they came and helped us salvage what we could from our house. The very first person that got to my house was my friend Raphael, who I met in Tent City and is now on our board at Open Table Nashville. I met him over 10 years ago and he he showed up and he gave me a huge hug and he was like, let's get rolling. What do we need to do? And I had people from Tent City call me and say, I heard about your home. Can I come help you move? You know, these are folks with nothing. These are folks that we're helping. And it just reminded me of how intertwined our liberation is with others. Some of us get really, really, we really distance ourselves from folks that are on the bottom by layering security after security around us and thinking, well, if I can have this job or this home or this paycheck or whatever, I'm safe. I'm not them. But it doesn't take much at all. Like we're so close. We're just a tragedy or a disaster away. And our liberation is bound up together. I never anticipated needing help from Raphael or my friends from Tent City. Um, but to have them reach out to me was the most moving thing. And that's happened over the years in other ways too. Um, but it's just been, it's been a really moving realization and it's really driven home um, how important community and relationships are in this work. I'm friends with a lot of people who are struggling right now. And because of what happened to my home and um, because I'm pregnant and some of our team, um, you know, we ha- have immunocompromised um, things that keep us from being on the front lines, but other members of our team have been on the front lines. Everybody has been so amazing at saying, you know, if I can't do this, I'm doing this. We plug in where we can and together we make the difference. This work of working toward change and justice and collective liberation is not something you do alone. It's something you do in a community. It's something that you do with collective responsibility, not with just everything heaped on your shoulders. And that means that we, we have each other's back. Um, sometimes we have to step out um, and other people step in for us. And other times we cover for other people. But this work is work of a community, not of individuals. It doesn't matter whose name is in the paper. Um, it matters who who is supporting frontline folks um, and how are we caring for each other and having each other's back and showing solidarity in these really difficult times. You know, you're, you're really touching on it, especially with this sort of community and collaboration-driven um, thought. Uh, there's been so much discussion about the multiplicity of pandemics <laughs> that are yes. affecting the world right now. And one of the things that's particularly interesting to our team and um, and really important 
to us and, and feels kind of woven. It's really been woven into the core of the identity of this podcast. <laughs> but we want to talk specifically about how COVID-19 and racial injustice are these two inseparable realities in our cultural moment, um, two pandemics that are coexisting. And, you know, there was a New York Times article that recently quoted an organizer saying, I'm just as likely to die from a cop as I am from COVID. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I'd love if you could speak as a minister, you know, how how do you do ministry in this moment? How do you garner the strength and the courage um, to move toward the the values that a place like Open Table has, compassion, dignity, solidarity, um, to act even in this time? So, so preaching, acting, moving toward these kinds of values, um, when when things like compassion, dignity, and solidarity are really up for grabs in our culture's rhetoric, um, yeah how how do you do that right now? What does what does working in collaboration and community really look like? Yeah, so I want to first say that I've heard I've been kind of frustrated to hear people, especially early on, talk about how COVID nineteen was a great equalizer how it could affect anybody, you know, and how it was touching the lives of celebrities and, Mm -hmm. you know, politicians. And we have seen, hands down, COVID-19 is not a great equalizer. It preys on people who are systematically disenfranchised. The black and brown communities, our poor brothers, sisters, and siblings, um, people who are vulnerable um, or older or have health issues. These are the folks that are being hardest hit And some folks have the luxury to work at home. You know, when the safer at home orders hit, a lot of people went to their places and they closed their doors. Our friends have never had that luxury. We have social profiling and racial profiling in Nashville and they have coexisted and they are, um, they're killers. They put our people in cages. Um, They take away possibilities of life. And what we're seeing with with these outcries for justice, for for abolition, for defunding and reimagining the police, um, we have seen in Nashville people coming forward to say, the police don't make us safe. Mm-hmm. Having resources, having housing, having community centers, having education, um, having de-escalation, these things make us safe. And we're reimagining that. We're, we've seen a really beautiful fusion between, in Nashville at least, between housing advocates um, and advocates for racial justice. We've been tight for a long time because we know how deeply intertwined these issues are. And we show up for each other. We, we go to each other's um, actions and we support, we give money, um, we share resources, we get on the phone and we talk across lines because these issues are not issue silos. They are deeply intertwined. And we know that so many people um, are at risk because they don't have what they need and because white supremacy, the cancer of white supremacy that is systematically infused into our cities and into our nation um, is it's killing people. It's killing us. So we've been we've been working together um, with other activists to support each other's movements, 
um, to show up for each other. You know, ministry in this time, um, it looks like showing up for each other. And whether that's in person or whether that's through sharing resources, our friends in North Nashville um, from a group called Gideon's Army, a, a black, powerful group doing de-escalation, doing violence interruption, doing um, critical response. They they had extra things from the tornado, um, and they offered it to our people. You know, we supported them and raised um, raised their profile through our social media. Um, these this is what it looks like to to really not just fight for an issue, but to fight for collective liberation. Um, and and it means and it means being in community together. It means knowing each other. Um, we've spent years forming those relationships and strengthening them. And it really matters in this time. Those relationships are, are the glue. Um, I'm, I'm a part of a movement chaplaincy group as well. And the movement chaplaincy group has been forming here for about four years. And the, what's cool about the movement chaplains, it's a multi-faith, interfaith, multi-faith group. Um, but we exist, we come from different issues, we come from different faith backgrounds and traditions, but we exist to provide care and healing resources to the frontline folks. And movement chaplaincy means that we, we have relationships with organizers, we have relationships with the safety teams that you know run safety at the biggest marches, um, at the vigils, at the protests. Um, we can do frontline support when people are arrested. Um, this, this group has been such a lifeline and has mobilized in really powerful ways in Nashville um, with the racial justice work, especially um, with all the uprisings that have happened around that. And I'm really excited to see that keep growing because healing is something that our system needs, right? Our system is deeply toxically wounded. Um, and so are many of us. <laughs> so are many of our movement leaders who have had to bear such trauma for so long um, and, and be up against such powerful forces and powerful people. Um, it's incredibly difficult work to sustain. So the movement chaplaincy group is really um really bringing some life and some healing, I think, um, into movement spaces here and is kind of still at the beginning phases of really looking at what that could look like on a larger scale um, in Nashville and across the, the nation. A group called Faith Matters Network is really helping um, with those efforts and is really wonderful. Lindsay, I know Sushama has a follow-up question, but I just wanted to say this movement seat sorry, movement chaplaincy group and the group you just named. Um, can you just give us a quick line about where people can find out more? Because they sound like prototypes as faith leaders come to us asking questions of like, what do we do? How do we respond? What does it really look like? These sound like directions. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> so definitely. really concrete directions. So if people need like a, like a, you know, how do I find out how this group works so that I can do one in my city? You know, where, where would they go? The best place to go um, to find out more about movement chaplaincy is Faith Matters Network. 
Um, they have a really amazing online presence. They have community care chaplains um, that have been launched in Nashville and elsewhere. And they also do movement chaplaincy trainings. And we've been, our cohort in Nashville has been a big part of that, of launching that. They have a lot of materials online and they um, they have a training available um, next week and ongoing. Um, so that's definitely something to, to look into. Um, movement chaplains are different than a, than a clergy member who wears a collar in protest. Um, when I mobilize with the movement chaplains, um, sometimes we wear purple bandanas. So there's a kind of visible symbol of us. Um, but I don't wear my stole. I don't wear my collar. Um, I try to dress down and have something that signifies me as a caregiver because so many people in movement spaces have been traumatized by organized religion. And the prophetic witness we're offering is radical and compassionate care um, and healing resources that are multi-faith. Um, and, and that can kind of get bogged down. So when there is a role, I think, I know for faith leaders who are going to visibly represent their faith on the outside. That communicates a kind of power, right? Um, But when we do movement chaplaincy, um, we're really close to the ground. We're close to the organizers. We're close to the safety team. We're working in tangent with them um, and coordinated with them. Um, And we have specific roles we're filling. So that's, um, I, I will say that. And people, again, Faith Matters Network is definitely the best place to go to learn more about that. Thank you. That's amazing. I love, I just, I wrote down so many things. Sorry. That movement chaplaincy is brilliant. I'm on the website. This is amazing. Um, Thank you. Yes. Oh my gosh. Like I, anyway, I'll be reading all of this later. This is amazing and beautiful work. Um, We have a, we have a couple questions. We wanted to ask you about protest um, as worship, but before I, I ask you that, I had a quick question. I love how you said that how our, our collective uh, liberation is tied to each other. And I couldn't mm-hmm. agree more. And you know what else I, I love about what you're saying, Lindsay is, is when you describe your, I guess it's, I, I'm calling them congregants or the, those you serve as friends. Am I hearing that correctly? Yes. We are very you, intentional about the language. Yeah, yes. So can you talk about that language of friends um, and, and why that and what got you guys to be that intentional? And I, I want to say again, how lovely it is to hear you say that friends. I like it. With Open Table Nashville, we believe in we believe in people's agency and dignity, and we respect them um, as agents in their own lives. Um, you know, a lot of people who do homeless outreach or homeless services um, will talk about people as guests or clients or consumers, and that language didn't communicate to us the kind of radical mutuality that we see um, with our our friends who are experiencing homelessness. This is a, using the language of friend is a radical, um, radical way to describe um, the relationship we have with people. Um, There's mutuality. You know, when we've needed help, our friends have showed up for us, just like we've showed up for them. It goes both ways, and we learn so much about resilience and about um, the world and about the crisis of homelessness from people that are living it. Um, we also, our name, Open Table, kind of speaks to 
speaks to what we want to communicate, this radical inclusivity, where, you know, there's always an extra chair, there's always an extra place. And we are really working not to not to get crumbs from the tables of power, but for our friends to have a place at the table. Um, and that involves a power shift. We have a systemic analysis of homelessness. Um, and we really believe that um, our friends are a crucial part of that. So we want um, our friends to have leadership roles, both in our organization, on our board, um, and in the work itself. Because who knows, who knows homelessness better than someone who survived it um, and has, has known the trauma um, up close. So um, again, it's, it's really to honor them. We don't see people's deficiencies when we see someone who's experiencing homelessness. We see their resilience. We see their, their capabilities. We see beyond that into who they are, into um, all that they still possess, into the stories that they've lived. So it's a way to communicate that. We have, we have actually asked, I think, every person that we've interviewed uh, so far about yeah. what you think about protest being worship. Is protest worship? So for me and for a lot of the people I know here in Nashville, protest is absolutely worship. I, I think back to um, 1965 when Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel mm. was marching alongside King in Alabama And he said this really beautiful quote when he was reflecting back on that march. He said, for many of us, the march was about protest and prayer. Legs are not lips and walking is not kneeling. And yet our legs uttered songs. Even without words, our march was worship. I felt as if my legs were praying. And, you know, I've I've been in the movement community here for over a decade. for 13 years. And I've been, there's no telling how many actions and protests and marches I've been to and helped with. Right. <laughs> but when you get in deep, um, and even sometimes on your first one, there's there's a spirituality to these things. There's a, you know, whether you're whether you're chanting, there's a call and response to the chants. There's this, there's this rhythm and movement, um, that is very liturgical. Um, there's this prophetic fire that you can feel, um, like emanating from people's bones and hearts. Um, it's, it's so spiritual. And I've actually, I actually have come to find God so much more on the streets um, on the streets during actions, on the streets um, in the campsites where people are sharing what they have and make sure no one goes without. I find God on the streets more than I find God in, um, in buildings and in, um, in churches and faith communities that shut their doors and protect their members and, and think their salvation is a personal one and not a social one. Um, it's where... It's where I, I feel most alive and where I, I feel God most tangibly moving in our midst. So for me, protest is absolutely worship. And, and that you can see the human spirit in protest saying, we believe another world is possible. Um, another world is yet to come. This current world 
is not as it should be. Um, And we are using our bodies to bear witness to that, to the injustice, but also to the possibilities. And that's why um, I can't imagine um, not being involved in in such public worship like that. Mm. Mm -hmm. Gosh, sounds um, sacramental and uh, filled with testimony. (laughs) Yes, it really is sacramental. Yes. I'm wondering... um, I'm going to combine two questions. It's one we didn't ask you that's part of our like introductory set and then mm-hmm. one that's listed right in front of my face right now. So, you know, when the global pandemic reality set in, you're in the wake of a tornado. You yourself have lost your home. I'm curious, like once that news hit you about the pandemic, I'm curious about some of the first thoughts that went through your head. And then after you tell us about those first thoughts, I'd love to know what you think you may remember from this season of your ministry when you look back. We, our community was really hollowed. I felt really hollowed by the tornado. Um, it, it devastated already struggling places and neighborhoods, and lives of people. Um, And then when the pandemic came, um, it was so chaotic because none of us knew what to expect. We were all in uncharted waters. Um, There's no guidebook to say, here's how you do homeless outreach and housing justice work um, in the midst of a global pandemic. Here's start here. It was incredibly chaotic, and I think for weeks, for maybe the first month or two, um, I was and our team was in this crisis response mode of pushing feelings down and like doing tasks and being out there and figuring out um, what we needed to do. And then the reality of the long-term nature of this kind of set in. But even though there was such a like gutting um, feeling that hit over us, that overtook us with the devastation and uncertainty of everything. Um, There was still this really beautiful energy of neighbors helping neighbors and people coming together. And whether it's across agencies or across um, the street from each other or Um, across the city, people were coming together and really pooling resources in a way that wasn't just about charity, but that was looking toward justice and that was trying to help homeowners stay in their homes and trying to really put the care where it needed to be for the most vulnerable. So it was, again, this mixture of devastation and also just being inspired by the mutual aid that was happening around us with people that had very little to give, you would think that they were still finding ways to plug in. So we're still kind of, we still feel a wash and all of that. Um, and it ebbs and flows, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's a different time. It's such an interesting time that is again, devastating, but full of possibility. How have you seen God at work? I see God in the margins. Um, I don't see God coming from places of power. 
um, our hope doesn't come from people in power granting us or a few people um, some crumbs. Our hope comes from God's spirit of liberation blooming in us and breathing through us and our neighbors. It comes from um, people on the ground, from service providers and faith communities and advocacy groups coming together. Um, I see God and the people sharing what they have. I see God and people checking on their neighbors. Um, I see God every time somebody wears a mask to protect other people um, and take this seriously. Um, I see God and our friends under bridges who are sharing their food boxes when someone new moves in because they've just lost their home because evictions have restarted. I see God on, in the abandoned places of our empire and no politician um, will bring the change that people power can bring uh, when we demand a different world. You know, we saw so many examples in North Nashville um, after the tornado when it was devastated. The community mobilized itself before the city ever got any response, like up and running. People already were pulling generators for their neighbors. They were already doing food distribution. They were already doing cleanup work. And then the city comes in and the city's like, we're here. We're here to help. And we're like, we don't. Yes, we need you. But no, we don't. Like, where have you been? Um, I see God in the people who are saying enough enough injustice, enough white supremacy, enough police brutality, enough systems that only crush us. And while they look out for the wealthy um, and give huge, huge handouts to the wealthy, enough with these systems, we can do better and we will. Um, And until we do better, we're going to stay in the streets um, because you need to hear us um, and you need to see the collective power of the people. That is where I find God. Lindsay, how do you, and you, I think you've addressed this a little bit, but again, uh, personally too, how do you think you have changed theologically, spiritually, personally? Um, you, you, you're going to be a mother. Um, what, what are you feeling that your work, how, what are you feeling your work will do in this moment? How have, how have you changed? I guess is my question. I am so, I have such a closer and deeper understanding of um, the trauma of losing a home now. Um, I have so much appreciation for um, women throughout history who have nurtured life mm-hmm. in the midst of incredible odds. Um, I have so much awe for, for the people um, who don't have a lot of power in our society who keep the candles and campfires of liberation lit for others, who keep the struggle going, the threads of resistance going. I can't explain what it's like to literally be carrying life in my body um, mm-hmm. while our people are dying. We've done, you know, we've done memorials um, by the train tracks for someone who was hit by a train. We've done um, other things for our people who have died in this time. We've lost over a dozen people in the last three months on the streets here. Um, so to be literally carrying life and death um, in my body feels, 
feels important. And all of us have that, no matter if you're carrying a human like I am, who's actually getting quite big right now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, month eight. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I'm changing in that way for sure. um, (laughs) Absolutely. Yes. Shama and I have both been there. Oh, my God. You know. The back pain is real. <laughs> oh my gosh. But um but all of us, all of us are carrying those um those things in us and we are made in the image of a divine, complex, sacred being that carries that with us and accompanies us on this journey as we accompany others and others accompany us. And I think the depth of realization of all these things is um, really one of the ways that I've changed during this time. Um, and I also have a deeper, a deeper kind of hope that this really, um, this really dark time, this really, um, it's really this moment of crisis and apocalypse um, is also a moment where things are cracking open that never have before and things are being revealed that had not been revealed in this way before. And it's a moment of incredibly fierce um, possibility and thinking that another world is possible, believing it and putting action to it. So I'm really as, as worried as I am about um, the trajectory of this. Um, I'm also, I'm also trying to lean into lean into the possibilities that can come from, from this. Do you have anything you would want to say to fellow leaders? Our ministry at Open Table happens outside of the walls. Um, we're an interfaith, multi-faith nonprofit. Um, and we, what we do happens on the streets. None of us, no matter how amazing our faith community is or our ministry is, can do this work alone. And, and it doesn't matter whose name is in the headlines. It's about all of us finding our place in the struggle. For some people, that's going to be educating their white congregates on white supremacy um, and how they can work in their families and communities to dismantle it from the inside while our other friends are healing um, and trying to stay alive. You know, for some of us, it's going to be um, the behind the seats work, behind the um, the scenes work of really coordinating um, and supporting these frontline groups who who are exactly where they need to be. Um, some of us, it's about continuing to prophesy that another world is yet to come, mm. and we need to be out on the streets. We need to be in the movement spaces. Um, but I would just say, wherever you are, find your place. Don't be discouraged that it's not as shiny as someone else's place. Mm. This work is messy, and there are going to be lots of iterations of it, and there are going to be lots of seasons. So find your place in the struggle and dig into it, um, no matter how visible it is. Um, and Always, always, whenever any of us have additional resources, extra resources, extra food, extra whatever, we have to be opening our hands to people and using those resources for not only the most vulnerable among us, but also um, for dismantling white supremacy and supporting 
black and brown groups that um, have been economically disenfranchised for centuries. So find your place, um, dig in and share everything you can. Open your hands wide. Um, that's that's our work to do. Just beautiful. <laughs> I feel we keep one of the things we keep texting to each other, just so you know, Lindsay is like, oh my gosh, someone get this woman a pulpit. You know, this is awesome. You know, I'm in church right now. Oh my you know, God, I know. It's so like <laughs> y'all are sweet. That's, That's very kind. Oh, I get kind of passionate if you haven't noticed. I love it. We Wonderful. love it. Oh, you're oh, it's just absolutely wonderful to learn more and get this glimpse into your world. I think um, Garrett actually is going to carry us out with one more question. Sure. Yeah. Uh, Lindsay, what's your prayer for the young person uh, you're getting ready to bring into the world? Oh, gosh. You're going to make me get teary. <laughs> um, um, uh, my prayer is that they that they know that there's a community around them, um, that they're not alone and that, um, they have, have the beautiful, beautiful, um, beautiful possibility of being involved in something that, um, that is new, that is the world changing. You know, the moment that this little babe in my belly right now, um, is being born into, is not just one of fear. Um, it's not a moment of fear. Um, we are scared. (laughs) Yes. There are lots of things we're scared about. Um, but I am so hopeful about the next generation, um, and so committed to loving them well and teaching them well and learning well from them. Um, and I'm just so hopeful about, um, people who, like little ones coming into the world who are fully alive and um, recognize their liberation being bound up with others um, and really carrying us forward. Um, we, I believe in the possibility of future generations um, and want to do everything I can to equip them and support them and learn from them. Um, and that doesn't just mean the child I'm carrying. That means the students that are out there right now, um, we who are, um, who are moving into middle age slowly, but we are, um, have the distinct privilege of learning from our young people and how fierce and committed and outspoken and imaginative they are. And so I hope that this little babe, um, knows that they're loved, knows that they're in a, um, supported community and knows that they, um, can be whoever they need to be, um, and that their liberation is bound up with that of others. Thank you for joining us for Being Church in the Time of COVID, a podcast from Princeton Theological Seminary that engages the experiences and insights of pastors, theologians, and rising ministry leaders during the pandemics of 2020. You can learn more about Open Table Nashville at opentablenashville.org. You can learn more about Princeton Theological Seminary at ptsem.edu. Thank you for joining us.